Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Gene Signorini, and I'm excited for today's episode. Today's guest is an industry thought leader, a pro-sci change management professional, and a founding board member of the Minnesota Change Management Network. He was also part of the team that was in the book, Big Change at Best Buy, Working Through Hypergrowth to Sustained Excellence. He's currently Senior Change Consultant at Pioneer Management Consulting. Please welcome to the program, Paul Feikema. Paul, really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Gene. I'm really excited and honored to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I uh, can't wait to dig in a little bit. Definitely want to yeah. kind of come back to the to the book. I always like kind of talking about those type of experiences, but I think we'll kick it off as we always do with 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 the kind of big question, um, which is, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today? I, it's it's always a good question, Gene. I think I think two things. I think one is lack of appreciation. And two is closely connected to that, this concept of not being heard, mm. not being listened to in a big organization. And I think, you know, lack of appreciation, I believe, is when you think about how large organizations get things done, who's at where revenue is created in an organization, it's typically the frontline worker. And uh, I think uh, those who stand up and take credit for uh, how smart an organization is and how great an organization is at, at delivering revenue and creating success, it's not very often that those frontline workers are stood up in front of people as the true heroes in a lot of organizations. And so I think, I think, it's, it's, I think it's a challenge to, to truly recognize the people that are making revenue happen in an organization every day. And I think secondly, um, they are right there, right on the front line. Um, right where revenue happens. And so uh, when you think of the, the people in an organization that are close, most close to what customers are giving and feeding back, what they're looking for, what they're, um, uh, you know, requesting from an organization, feedback a customer has about their experience with the brand. It's often the frontline workers. And I also see, the, the backside of that gene, which is even though they have a lot of that information, uh, organizations don't necessarily have the infrastructure to listen to that information very well or that feedback. Well, you know, that part's very interesting and it, and it kind of brings to mind a lot of other things we've heard on this program over the last several months, right? So this idea, you know, particularly when we talk about technology, that is being delivered to the front line. A lot of it is, is used to either, you know, get information from them, but not necessarily get feedback from them. Right. It's about kind of getting data in. Right. Um, And so I think it's this, 
kind of notion that, yeah, you're kind of giving us these new technology tools, but you're not necessarily giving us tools that, you know, can that create a two-way dialogue, if you will, right between yeah. them and the in the frontline worker. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think, um, you know, I recently uh, had a client that was implementing, uh, you know, a new handheld technology for uh, service workers out doing service and maintenance, um, you know, HVAC work and that type of an idea. So, you know, multi hundreds of service technicians out across the country and they're handing them an iPad and having them enter information and all of the data that they're entering are in service of the customer. There's no wrong answers there, but ultimately the gap in a lot of that is exactly what you said, Gene, is uh, we're getting a lot of customer data equipment on site, you know, maintenance data uh, that are important for that organization to function, but it's not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily tapping into the voice and the feedback of the service worker itself about number one, how does the experience of having an iPad on site help hurt or hinder me? Uh, but number two, um, what's my insight on the customer experience here? Uh, versus, you know, just customer product data and maintenance data, etc. Yeah, it's that data doesn't necessarily give the nuances, right. right? Those that those individuals in the field, you know, are seeing on a day to day basis or, or yep. interacting with on a day to day basis. You know, Paul, one of the things um, that I think was striking about going through the pandemic, particularly with frontline workers. I, I always, I've referred to this before our uh, skillful CEO, uh, Justin Lake and my co-host on the podcast prior to the pandemic, I, I think we, um, he had a piece published in Inc magazine, which um, talked about frontline workers as the invisible workforce, right? There are people all around us um, that are delivering goods and servicing HVAC equipment, things of that nature, we, we don't recognize. The ironic thing is obviously that flipped, I think, pretty dramatically in the pandemic, which, the, you know, uh, they were no longer invisible, right? And we started calling them essential. essential. Um, but, you know, it still seems like there is this problem, which you have um, emphasized of they're still, even though they've been recognized and even though they've been lauded in many ways, they still feel very underappreciated. You know, has the pandemic made it worse, in fact, than uh, prior to it? Whew. You know, it's a good question, Gene. Has it? I think, I think it's probably like a lot of things in our country lately. It's probably brought it to the existing problem to the forefront, right? So now we're calling frontline workers essential. They've always been essential. They've never not been essential for a business to function. Uh, and so, so now we've called them essential, but have we changed behaviors as, as an organization to make them feel valued as essential, to make them feel heard as essential? And so maybe we've, what we've done is we've put the lens on it, but we haven't necessarily changed the systematic ways that we can do a better job of enabling, quote unquote, essential frontline workers. Yeah, and I think you, you know, you kind of talked about it's probably exacerbated or it's brought it to light maybe more. Uh -huh. And perhaps those, the pressures, right, which have definitely increased in the pandemic on 
many frontline workers, if not all of them, has just maybe things are now boiling over, right? It's it's kind of saying, okay, we've kind of re reached an inflection point, um, so to speak, which is organizations under pressure, you know, as a business with a capital B, right? And the frontline workers are under pressure themselves. Yeah. And now that is kind of colliding, if you will. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's just, I think it's more visible. And I think it's, it's more visible. And I don't think a lot of organizations aren't built to change that fast to, to create different structures and, and ways of doing business to, to help a frontline employee feel more heard and appreciated. Yeah. It's hard. It takes time, unfortunately, and today. Yeah, Paul, I'd love to kind of come back a little bit to this this um, in a few minutes, um, but I think it would also be worthwhile for our listeners to learn a bit about, more about you, um, sure. your role, and and a bit about Pioneer uh, Management Consulting. So, just you know, tell me a little bit about what you do on a day to day basis. Yeah, no problem. I. I moved into consulting about 15 years ago. Before that, I spent uh, kind of what I call my formative career years growing up with Best Buy Company. Um, you know, aka you mentioned the book at the top of the podcast. Um, you know, that happened at a point in my young manager career. I was an operations manager at Best Buy, um, you know, running multiple retail locations. And I was tapped on the shoulder during a pretty big critical transformation moment for that company where, you know, like a lot of companies face, we either curve jump, evolve, or we, or we go away. And so those are difficult moments. And what I thought was valuable at that point is they tapped a core of us um, you know, successful, credible leaders in that organization and taught us what does it mean to go through change and transformation. And, uh, you know, I was, I, got, I was honored to be part of the team then that got to lead that organization through that major curve jump, that evolution uh, and to, to be more successful and embrace. And I spent several more years with Best Buy going and helping to lead those major transformation moments. Um, and, but I left in 2008 and I spent uh, the last 15 years or so consulting. And, and so I, I spend time with companies all over the globe, right in those transformation moments where they're trying to figure out how do we, how do we systematically curve jump, how we operate, whether it's around a piece of technology, um, you know, where we're trying to create a better customer and employee experience on the front line, uh, or we're redesigning how we work, or we're going through merger and acquisitions to, to, to create, to buy new product and capabilities into an organization. Those are moments of transformation. And so that's where I lean in and help organizations through those curve jump moments. And so, um, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to, to be with Pioneer at the moment, Pioneer Management Consulting, Minneapolis-based small boutique organization that is, I think, really made up of some of the, the brightest minds in, in change and digital transformation right now. Um, and so I've been honored to be tapped on the shoulder and be part of that organization as well. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Pioneer is kind of cross industry, but it seems to lean heavily toward those industries that have large frontline workforces. Is that correct? Yeah, that really is true. They, uh, 
you know, from anywhere from manufacturing and agriculture supplies, um, you know, with different, you know, plants all across the world that are, uh, you know, kind of serve agriculture in our food supply chain to, to, to medical health professionals, to retail. Uh, yeah, a lot of companies they're, they're supporting uh, and Frontline is always right in the, in the crosshairs of that conversation. Are there particular change initiatives that are, um, I guess, more common now that you're seeing? You know, are you seeing companies go through kind of a similar kind of um, types of change, or is it really still all across the board? I think there's a lot of commonality. I think what what has sped change up for a lot of organizations is. Um, this need to be technology, technology is always at the heart often yeah. of a lot of change today. Uh, it could mean a lot of different things, right? It could mean uh, we have grown large enough and fast enough where I have to connect disparate parts of my company together. And so I got to get disparate companies, whether it's done through merger acquisition or with just fast growth, I got to get them on the same platform so we can share data, information, and create efficiencies. That's often the case. Um, you know as, as well as anybody, Gene, there's a ton of technology advances in the last five to eight years on frontline worker innovation, right? From handheld capabilities to, you know, uh, 24-7 uh, phone application capabilities that allows me to connect, do my job, support whatever I'm being asked to support. And so... Um, you know, technology is probably one of the most common denominators on that. But I think connected with that, every time we struggle with technology implementation, right? Uh, how do we do it fast enough, um, you know, to, to stay ahead of the technology curve, but also we're redesigning ways of working when we do that. So I, there's often an inflection moment with frontline workers and with any other teams within a large organization of new technology can create new capabilities, which means that I have to reframe how we work. And so there's often process innovation that happens in that piece yeah. as well. And so we're teaching people not only new technology behaviors, but we're teaching new ways of working behaviors. When you, you talked about you know, the fact that most change or much of change is being at the intersection with, with technology. What's the tip? Who do you typically engage with in the organization or maybe more pointed, who is typically engaging you or, or bringing you in? Is it, is it an organizational organizational change practice within an organization or are these organizations that don't really have um, those change practices? Is it IT? Is it operations? You know, where is kind of the inflection point to kind of say, we need help here to kind of yeah. manage through this transformation? Um, it's, it's a complicated answer, Gene, because I don't think there's a one size fits yep. all, right? Uh, it's it, because some of it is technology driven. A lot of it at the core is technology driven. IT is always a entity in that conversation. 
uh, a lot. They're not always the, the entity or the, the force that brings change management into the conversation. Yeah. It can be HR, it can be an operations leader, it can be um, uh, a, you know, finance even. I think it really kind of comes down to the organization, the size of the organization, often the maturity of a change practice inside an organization, whether it's present at all for a small organization or a large presence with some, you know, large international companies, um, you know, it, it can vary. Okay. Yeah, so. I, I'd love to kind of go back a little bit and dig in on your Best Buy experience. Um, uh-huh. A couple of things you kind of alluded. What were some of the, the changes you kind of talked about as an inflection point, I think, uh-huh. for Best Buy overall, right? Hey, are we going to survive? Or are we going to expand and kind of grow right. and and um, and be something bigger? What, what were kind of the, the forces that were at play there? What were kind of those key change um, or transformational inflection points for the business at that time? Well, I think, you know, I think Best Buy is a good example of a lot of companies that, um, that grow dramatically. Um, there, anytime a company grows from being small entrepreneurial, I think I joined Best Buy and there's literally 40 some stores, regional retailer. And as they grow, uh, there's this concept of, you know, there's evolution and there's revolution over the life cycle of a company, right? Evolution is, is we grow dramatically. In this case, you know, uh, the, 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 one of the first inflection points was they had to grow fast to create market share, to gain market share, to uh, take that market share away from key competitors, um, to be viable to grow beyond just a regional retailer into a national retailer and ultimately a a potential global retailer, right? And so gaining market share, but that came at a cost, right? They grew so fast that structure and efficiency wasn't part of that equation. Mm -hmm. So there's an inflection point where they're, yeah, they've got market share, but they're not making a level of profitability that'll sustain that organization. So they have to create standardization. They had to create a moment where every time a customer walks into any store across the chain, that experience is repeatable and predictable in terms of quality. Uh, An employee can work at any location and feel like that employee experience is predictable, you know, uh, and with the same level of quality and leadership that they'd get anywhere else in the chain. And so creating a standard operating practice with across the chain, not only in the retail stores, but in, you know, how, how the supply chain worked behind that. So there was an inflection point of creating, um, you know, standardization and efficiencies with how business is done. The challenge was, and often is, is that you have to go through a revolution period to make that happen. Because what I've done is I fostered leadership that thrives on chaos and independence and, and flexibility in every location across the organization. And now what I'm asking to do is to pull leadership away from this entrepreneurial, this is my kingdom type of feeling into, okay, I got to follow a rule book. And that's a hard hat to put on if I've been the leader that's been a hero for being the best innovator, most flexibility and being the best kind of creator of my kingdom in any particular location in a chain. And so, you know, it's not just about 
creating a playbook of new processes that need to be followed location by location to create efficiency. It's about how do I mold new leadership behaviors and create new mindsets with leaders. And in any one of those revolution periods as a company grows, this one being an example, you're gonna lose some leaders because that's just how they operate. But if you do a good job of leading transformation of being deliberate and creating coaching relationships from leader to employee, what you can do is you can protect, you know, if you think of it as a, as a, as a, as a curve, right? Um, that's 60% in the middle that are looking for help and support about how do I make that leap? You can preserve a lot of the, those leaders and help evolve them through that revolution point into the next period of, of evolutional growth for an organization. And then there'll be another revolution after that. Sometimes then standard operating procedure becomes almost limiting when you get to a certain spot. Now I need to rebake back in flexibility and innovation. So. Yeah. And it sounds like you don't want to lose all of that. For example, in the case of Best Buys, you're talking about all of that entrepreneurial spirit, right? right? You're trying to harness it to a certain degree um, and almost create a culture that, you know, come, you know, takes away the best of, of the old, right? As you kind right. of branch through that or you emerge from that revolutionary period, as you kind of called it. Yeah. Yeah. I think. You know, anytime you go through a revolution period before you slide into a heavy period of evolution and growth, you, you know, this isn't a, we become this and then we become this, right? You know, it's, it's not an or conversation where this or we're that, it's an and conversation where we're the best of what we did before, core parts of our culture that we never want to give up that will continue to bring in and along with us on that evolutionary journey. Um, but if you don't do that deliberately, sometimes you'll continue to pull old behaviors in that culture along with you that won't serve that next period of growth. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned you were kind of tapped on the shoulder, right. As an operations leader to, you know, come help lead this, this change. How did you feel about that at first? Um, you know, it's a good question. It's a, it's kind of a dual edge sword or, you know, there's kind of a positive negative conversation with that. Obviously I felt honored, right? I was respected as a leader. I was successful as, as a, as an operational manager in that particular environment. And so, um, I was flattered that I was being asked to be part of quote unquote, and more of a, an elite team to help the company emerge. And I recognize it obviously as a, as a unique career opportunity that I never even knew could exist to me before, right? It's, it was an unconventional growth path for me. But on the other hand, I was asked to do it a two-year commitment on that team, right? Which pulled me away from the career path that I was on. And so obviously it's a moment of decision, I say, you know, where you say, um, you know, I, you have to reframe a little bit of what you think is success and it's a risk, right? Because it's a, it's a brand new way of working in an organization that has never done that before. And so um, it's a risk. It's also a risk because it's, you know, that type of work puts you, um, puts you smack in the spotlight, right? Which has its wonderful benefits, 
there's a lot of people on the team that I worked with, including myself, that really propelled their careers very quickly upwards in the organization. Um, matter of fact, the leader that I worked with at that point, you know, within eight years was, I think, the second or third command in Best Buy when I, when I left. Um, but it also, you know, anytime a spotlight comes up, there's also the fear factor there, right? <laughs> Is, you know, if I don't do a great job or if we struggle as a team, uh, everybody knows it. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a moment of courage, but it's a, obviously it was a great career opportunity. Well, and it certainly seems that you got the change management bug after that, because you did seem to pivot your career, you know, from there. Right. What, what, what was it about it that kind of you said, OK, this is this is kind of where my career trajectory uh -huh. is going. Now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. Even when, when I jumped into the game, change management was a pretty early career. You know, there wasn't a lot of people that were getting paid, quote unquote, to do change management when I first moved into it. So it was a growing profession. And so, um, but I think I recognized a couple of things. One is I had a unique perspective that I really thought was valuable. I had a foot in being the leader. I sat in the chair of a leader, right, in an organization. And I knew and continue to know the stress, the fears, the challenges of being a leader in a fast moving, growing organization. Um, and so I have, you know, I had this opportunity to leverage that experience, understanding of that language and mindset, and then have uh, on my other foot, this steeped, um, methodical method, you know, frameworks for how organization and leaders can lead people through change. And so to be able to bridge those two worlds together, I get a lot of energy from, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also, I would say, it allows me and has allowed me as I've shifted into more of the consulting to be able to shift into, you know, organization after organization and quickly understand culture, understand language, ask good questions of leaders in that organization to truly get at the root cause of what is helping or hurting change in a team or a broad organization. And very quickly be able to bridge that into strategy for how we lead people and teams through or through, through change. Yeah. Do you see it as, and this is something we, I've, I've heard even in a, um, one of the most recent episodes that uh, we had was kind of this, uh, a similar notion of, of tapping, you know, those maybe operations leaders within the organization to, you know, be a part of the change team, be a key component of the change team, even from a consulting standpoint, if you're working right. with another company that, because ultimately you're going to leave at some point, right? Your, your job is going to be done, but the company's job isn't going to be done. Is that a best practice that you recommend or you see, which is, Hey, you really need to be tapping some of your operations leaders to kind of help lead that, that change in the organization. I think it is a best practice. I, I think, um, there's a lot of questions of what's the scale of how you do that in an organization. I think one is it, 
there's this, I think there's this concept of if we're not teaching change agility and change leadership skills to operational leaders, to function leaders in an organization, we're doing a disservice when we're, when we're, when organizations are going through change. And so um, the more we have the capabilities in major projects that are driving change in an organization to teach change leadership skills and kind of continue to model and transfer those across the organization, the organization is going to come out of that stronger. To do that tactically, right, you can do things like create change champions and change agent groups within companies that pull, you know, influential leaders into the work, right? And so then they can be a liaison and the face and are a champion of change as they go out through the organization. But then you can think all the way on the other side of that scale, what happened with me, which I don't see very happen very often. I don't see happen very often, excuse me, is tapped on the shoulder, literally pulled out of my job and assigned a role full-time to lead the company through transformation. Um, that takes courage yeah. because it, and, and it's an investment because what I'm doing is I'm taking some of my best executors in an organization and asking them to hand that off to someone else and ultimately be part of a team um, to, to transfer what they do more enduringly across the organization. It's a moment of courage and not a lot of other companies, not a lot of companies have uh, I would say the financial courage to make that type of decision. Well, and in some ways it sounds like it may not make the most sense in a lot of ways. I mean, particularly today, you've, we've talked about the pace of change. The change right. is, is almost an ongoing thing. And, and I liked how you talked about, you know, it, we need to further educate our operations leaders, almost everyone in the organization to think in a, in a kind of a change mentality, if you will, right. right. To have some of those core skills, because it's not necessarily, okay, we're going to change now and things are going to stay the same for, you know, for the next several years. And then we'll kind of go through this again. No, it seems like there's, this just constant, um, constant, uh, change cycle that's occurring. It is right. I think we're teaching change. You know, we use this term a lot in our, in our industry, we're teaching change agility. Mm -hmm. right for organizations how can we continue to be agile as we shift and shift and shift in a fast moving fast changing uh culture i think um i, I think where the the hard part for a lot of organizations and where we have the opportunity to influence and help is we spend a lot of time with leaders on how do they communicate change? What's the language, the key messages around a major change in an organization? What we often don't spend enough time on is how are they modeling new behaviors, right? There is one, one client I worked with uh, a couple of years ago that was really trying to move from this very, it was a retail company work, trying to move from a very sales orientated, very push uh, close mentality on their retail floors with customers, very scorecard driven, um, right? How much attachments have they gotten to every particular sale that the cut, you know, that a, that a frontline retail employee was interacting with. And they scorecarded the heck out of that. They're trying to move to a little bit more, a much more customer centered uh, company, 
right? And I was, I was touring with a leader as we were walking from store to store to store. And this leader was doing a great job of talking about customer-centric and customer-centered approaches and learning a customer story and attaching what, you know, the customer experience and the product in that experience to the customer story. Um, but the first thing they did when they walked into a building or interacted with any manager employee in that building was the same behavior that they did before. What were the numbers? What were the clothes, right? Tell me, tell me the attachments you got on that particular sale. And until we talked about their modeling, right? They're modeling the first interaction they have with everybody is the same thing they're reinforcing as important, the same thing that was important before. Get the numbers, the clothes, the clothes. It's not like we're discounting behavior there or results. But what we're doing is if I change that first interaction, I reinforce or model something that is more important. Tell me about the customer. What did you learn about the customer, right? What excited the customer about what they were in for today? And then marked my way into tell me about the products they walked out with that helped that customer experience what they were trying to experience, what they came in to experience, right? Until I changed what I was modeling, that leader modeled as a, as a behavior, um, we didn't move. We didn't move people until those leaders started to model something different. So they were good at talking, weren't good at modeling yet. And so, as we set up structures for organizations to make leaps in how they do work. We can provide technology, but ultimately what I'm looking for is where are the leaders reinforcing as the most important with that technology or with the customer interaction or wherever the inflection point behavior is that we're looking for change. Are the leaders changing their language as well as changing what they're reinforcing? So does, I mean, this is really interesting, Paul. I mean, does all change management ultimately come down to behavior change at, at the end of the day? Uh, it all does. Yeah, it all does. And, you know, there's a concept in our profession about, you know, compliance driven versus commitment driven change. Um, there are some things where I just don't give people a choice, right? If you're going to get paid on your expense report, you got to use this new, you know, digital expense reporting. Otherwise, you're not going to get paid, right? It's a, it's a, compliance driven change. So gosh darn, I guess I'm just going to have to figure it out, right? Do the training. <laughs> but the more the more skilled behavior change that is included in that, right, the more work we have as an organization to help people and behaviors and the more leaders are on the hook to understand not one, how their own behavior and what they're reinforcing is influencing in terms of people's commitment to be to new behaviors, as well as getting better at what they're looking for with their frontline employees so they can reinforce and support new behaviors there. How do you bridge those uh, compliance, you know, related change to commitment related change? So, and, and the reason I'm asking this, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm not asking it the right way, Paul, but is, you know, you, you kind of mentioned this expense report and in some ways like, or expense reporting software or something, in many ways, I think there's this notion or the way I think about it is, Many times when technology is an example is pushed down, you've got a, a, a transformation project on the, for the frontline workers, right? You talked about kind of handheld initiatives, new software. A lot of that 
is at least perceived as a compliance change, right? From the front line, right? They're giving me this tool. I have to use this tool, right? Where, where maybe the end goal is right to actually get to a, a commitment related change, but there maybe seems like a disconnect there. I, I don't know if I'm articulating this in a clear way, uh, but how do we bridge the gap to say, no, you know, we need you to use this, but there is a reason behind it right? A, a, a beneficial reason behind it. Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting conversation. And what pops into my head, and this is actually, I think there's even some part in the, in the book, um, you know, Big Change at Best Buy. And I continue to use this in my career, even though this is, book's been around for a while, is this equation about change like that. And it's behavior plus process equals results. And if I work my way backward, then that, that equation, right? We're always, change is about driving new results. It can be measured in business revenue, top line. It could be measured in operational savings, bottom line. It could be measured in increase in customer loyalty or employee experience, whatever the results that I'm driving for. Um, there's really a couple of ways for frontline employees that I can influence an increase in results. I can improve process or ways of working. And ultimately, this is why we do a lot, of, a lot of technology change, right? Is I'm trying to improve ways of working to drive a different or a greater outcome. But what we often forget is the behavior part of that equation. It's behavior plus process. And so just because I hand 650 iPads to service technicians across an organization doesn't necessarily mean that I'm getting the same level of quality execution with that iPad uh, across 650. I probably have 20% that are really embracing it and they've really impacted the customer experience and the data experience that can be had in that moment. I got a, probably 20% on the bottom that are never, they struggle and are resistant with that. And, you know, they, they're the ones that enter the least amount of information at the end of every call, just because they have to. And I've got a lot of people in the middle that would love to, if they knew why and knew how and were coached and reinforced, but how to leverage that technology to get a different result. That makes the difference, right? And so Gene, you and I talked about earlier, you know, how do we set up systems in a big change like that to influence the behavior part of that equation? Because I've got an IT team and an implementation team that, are, that is building the process part of that equation. But how do I influence the behavior part of that equation? And I think one of the one of the things that I've noticed myself do early on in my career, as I was getting into consulting, uh, and I see a lot of our profession get tripped on this, is we have a laser focus on the frontline worker in that moment, right? How do I influence behavior? But right, I'm a I'm a I'm one change professional uh, in a big C of what's important for a frontline and worker. And you and I both know what really reinforces a frontline worker, like my behavior as a retail employee or a service worker, or I'm standing in a plant in a manufacturing, what most influences that is my leader, right? What's important to my leader? 
that I look for every day that gives me feedback, that helps me understand when I'm doing well or when I'm not doing well, when I'm meeting my expectations or exceeding expectations, right? It's the leader in that moment that makes the difference. And so when I think about that equation and influencing the behavior part of behavior plus process equals results, we set up change practices that have to influence that leader and not just the, fr the frontline employee, because I can influence quality behavior across 650 technicians. But guess what? The leader can. And there's always in any organization, depending on the size and the structure, what I call a tipping point leader in that equation, meaning that um, there's a group of leaders that I can influence. I can influence 30 district managers that influence 650 technicians. I can help them with the behaviors and what, how to influence the behavior plus process results, the behavior part of that conversation. So they're the tipping point leader in this equation. If I can influence and support them to communicate differently, to model differently, to reinforce you know, accountability and recognition and coaching differently, then I'm pushing enduring change on what I could consider is just a compliant driven. I've handed people 650 different iPads. Yeah. You know, you know, you talking about this reminds me of this quote that I believe is attributed to Dwight Eisenhower, who said is a quote that said, sergeants are the army. Oh. Right. And the way I think about it, right. As you're talking about is, you know, who are the troops really listen to who are their real right. leaders, right? It's the sergeants, this is not commissioned officers. And I think it there's a correlation here, right? Which is, is, and we've recognized this, it's skillful and in, in we're working with it's, it's those, it's the, like you said, either the district managers or the line super line managers and supervisors, they're the ones that are keeping track of their employees, how they're doing with their learning and, and training and, and adoption right? They're the ones that are really kind of keeping things moving and actually from a positive direction, from positive change perspective. So I, I think that's that's great insights. And I, and I think it leads to another question I was going to ask. I think you asked, answered some of it already, but what is what makes, you know, technology change, technology adoption for, you know, the frontline different from what we would call knowledge workers or information workers? What makes that so much more of a challenge for that worker segment? I think, I think it's a couple of things. I think one, um, one, it's often scale, right? Is I have, you know, if I'm influencing a finance team and a corporations, I probably, you know, I have depending on the size of the company, it's the teams aren't that big. Right, and so it's it's easy for me to connect with leaders, to connect with that team, to help them through a change curve. But when I exponentially expand that across an organization of frontline workers, right, I'm going from tens of uh, people in an audience to hundreds to thousands of people in an audience. And so one is scale. Um, the other one is often. Um, you know, at its core, the changes, change is not that different. We're asking for behavior change, right? And so the concepts of what I'm asking people aren't that different. But like we talked about before, um, 
you have to connect to that tipping point leader, that tipping point role in an organization that'll allow you to exponentially drive change across our frontline workers, right? If I spend all of my energy on just frontline workers, I'm missing the, the enduring part of this equation. Yeah. And it certainly it, sounds like you mentioned, you know, that I, I like this fact is, listen, we're, it's behavior change, wh- whoever it is, right. That we're trying to, um, to implement here, but it sounds like those tactics, right. Or could be drastically different, um, given the audience itself, or at least some of the tactics, I guess, should be yeah. different. The approaches. Yeah. yeah. I think I, it, it, it absolutely is, or at least the scale of the tactics, Right. I think um, whenever I'm working with with frontline teams on change and I've identified that tipping point role. Right. The main tactic is how do I spend time or how do we build uh, support structures, tools, methodologies that supports the tipping line, tipping point role. Um, as the frontline role is going through training and how-tos about how to adopt and use new technology. Um, You know, I often work side-by-side with training, often even lead that responsibility for a lot of these big transformations. And so training is very focused often on the end frontline employee, and they should be, right, about how do I click through and accomplish X on a new system or new ways of working, right? We need to train that. I find myself trying to spend more time with the tipping point leader role in an organization and or roles above that or around that, that influence how supported that tipping point role is in an organization. So my methods and standards are slightly modified. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things I think we've seen, right? So you talked about that frontline worker teaching them new systems. Here's a click through to get to the, the, through the desired process. And in many cases, you know, given the pressures that frontline workers are under, and this is no criticism of them, it, it's more of they're kind of going through the motions, right? They're doing this because they, they have to go through this training. They have right. to kind of learn this thing, whereas they may not see the end goal here, whereas some of those tipping point leaders, as you said, may understand and say it's not really just about getting through the training, right? Uh-huh. It's about using the training because we're trying to influence new behaviors. We're actually trying to get to right. an end result that is going to make a difference is not just checking a box. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, it's like what, what I hear you saying there, Gene, is we're helping, we're helping key leaders, a tipping point leader role, get good language, yeah. right? We're helping them be very educated about the whys and, and, and get that. And we're actually even leveraging that group to help us build that language. Right, because they know what a frontline employee is going to listen to, or, or what's important to that stakeholder audience. And so, if we're doing a good job of partnering, leverage them as included drivers of that particular change, then that's where that's where magic happens. So, yeah, and I think uh, I, I love how you kind of you talked about that language and that communication because I I think it kind of brings it back to the challenge which you. Um, discussed at the, at the beginning of this, which is the feeling of, of appreciation, the feeling of being listened to. And I think much of that is just that dialogue that happens, right, as to the why, being able to communicate the why, right, which I think just makes people feel less anxious. And by being less anxious, like, okay, maybe, maybe 
this does make sense. Maybe this does help right. me. And I think that's very important. Yeah. And I think we do, we do a lot of, we do a lot of um, good language about why it's important to the company, but it's the, it's the district manager or the line manager, the sergeants in, you know, in your quote, right. That know the right language about what's important to the employee and probably even know better language about why it influences the customer experience. Yeah in that moment. So if we holistically talk, help them articulate the whys and use their experience to articulate the whys to not only what it drives for the company, but for the employee in that moment and for the customer in that moment, then we connect holistically. People will connect to some part of those whys that's important for them. Yeah. And, and the other thing I want to kind of sink back on before we kind of wrap up here um, is, you know, the other thing you mentioned earlier, you talked about appreciation, right? Or feeling underappreciated. The other thing you said, not listened to. And we often talk of about change. We often recognize that a lot of organizational changes push down from above, right? Mm-hmm. How do we incorporate or listen to the frontline workforce as a potential informer of or driver of change? Well, it's, it's a, it's a constantly moving target. Um, I think. I, I think there's two. I would probably look at it on two levels, Gene. I think one is let's use the same tipping point lead, right? Because how, an organization will struggle to listen to you know hundreds to thousands of different voices, right? It, it's overwhelming, and so they often discount that that highway of information that can come into the organization. But they can leverage that smaller tipping point to be the liaison to what what really that voice is. But if we do that, what we have to do is we have to build curiosity. We have to coach asking good questions as a tipping point leader, as a district manager, area manager, line manager, whatever, to pull that information, right? And we have to make that important to happen in an organization. So then what I, the, the second level is building structures around that tipping point leader about how we not only teach those skills or coach those skills from leader down to leader down to leader, but also how do we capture that information so it's usable, right? And so, so that's one thing. And I think the, sec, the, the last layer on that gene is, there are a lot of methodologies and, and technologies where you can capture the voice of frontline employees, right? You got all sorts of, of you know, social media like applications, Yammer and, and um, oh shoot, I'm coming up blank. Um, well, there's a hundred, hundred of them, right? Um, where you know you can there's dialogues that are happening on a phone or an iPad. Yeah, like Slack, like Slack or Slack Teams or yeah, yeah, yeah. Slack was the one that I was trying to think of. Um, right? There's all of these, and what I see is two big challenges. Is one, um, it's hard for those to be adopted without them organically being grown from front line up. A lot of times we'll dictate, hey, team, I want everybody to use Yammer. And it's just hard. Those are hard behaviors to build into an organization to, you know, to, to force organic social interaction. 
right? That can capture themes in a voice, right? Whereas a, as a, I can be in an office in corporate and throw out a question on the social media and I can get a lot of different feedback, but I only get it if they're using it. And so there's this, what I've always thought was the big challenge is how do I organically grow energy around, you know, these social media communication platforms that are powerful and um, connect that to how it can be heard in an, or, you know, an organization. How do we get it adopted? How do we allow it to grow? How do I tap into that from the, from the corporate seats to, to hear the voice of frontline employees? Yeah, and in many cases, just it's, it's not practical for frontline workers to be using some of those platforms. It's not necessarily even promoted, right? For right. them to use those platforms. They're in very scheduled, very rigid rigid schedule and they have rigid processes and tasks and it it, it doesn't actually even fit well yeah. with their, the, their way of working. That's actually a really good point. It doesn't always, I think. And so the other type of that equation is, is then how do I create moments? Right. And sometimes that's an investment conversation, right? Every moment a service worker isn't delivering a service, uh, we're not getting paid mm -hmm. as an organization, which means that's an investment moment if I want to create time for them to give us feedback for me to listen. Right. And so um, how do we do that? How do we create those moments? And sometimes how do we create investment opportunities for us to do that? Paul, before we um, kind of wrap up, I'd just like to ask you a question. If there's kind of one thing that you've taken away from, from your experience as a, a, a change leader, kind of one thing, if you will, what's the most important thing for folks listening who are either within organizations or other change leaders? What's kind of the most important thing that you think of when you're going into uh, an environment you know, where there's a disruption or, or transformation, kind of what's the, if, if there was one takeaway, what would it be? That might be the largest questions anybody's ever asked me. <laughs> it's hard. There's a lot. It's hilarious. I, um, I got to wrap up with at least a tough one, right? Now I got to get you to narrow it down from all your years of experience. <laughs> I'm asking you for the, the nugget, you know? That's hilarious. Um, boy. I think, I think if you've heard a theme of anything that I've talked about in my experience tells me is um, leaders make the difference. And as change management professionals, we have a massive part to play in enabling leaders to make a difference. Um, and I think the one thing that I had to learn when I moved out of the leader's chair into a change support role, right, a change professional, um, was coming to terms that I call it the spouse in a political marriage, right, in that the leader should be at the podium with all the right things to say and taking the credit, right, for being prepared in that moment. Um, but there's a lot of work between me and a leader behind that moment. And I had to learn to be okay, not to be the face at the front of the podium. And I think, so a lot of our work, every interaction I have with every client that I have, it's always about setting leaders to be successful. Well, I, Paul, that was a great answer, by the way. Uh, I, I'm 
I thought that's a great way to kind of wrap things up. And Paul, I really want to thank you for, you know, sharing your experience and, and your insights. This has been a, a fantastic discussion. So, so thanks. Thanks for taking your time today. Thank you, Gene. This has been really enjoyable. I appreciate uh, the invitation and being included. I'm excited. Yeah. So there's a couple of things we didn't mention as we got into your background. I know we were wrapped up in conversation. So you're a member of the Minnesota Change Management Network, or at least we're a founding board of directors of that. You um, are a member of the Association Change Management Professionals, correct? Um, correct. Yeah. Two things you're passionate about. Where's a good place? People want to reach out to you. Um, what would be the, a, a great way to get in touch? Probably the easiest way would be my LinkedIn profile. Okay. Um, and I'm sure people get the spelling of my name from your podcast information, but that's probably the easiest way to connect. Um, otherwise, Pioneer Management Consulting as well, uh, based out of Minneapolis, is also another great way to connect. Great. And it, yeah, if you're listening to this on one of the um, your favorite, you know, podcast syndicated platform, you can go to LinkedIn, even the Frontline Innovators. LinkedIn page. Um, Paul is, is going to be linked in, in the post here and you can get reach him there. Um, and uh, again, this has been a great discussion, Paul, really thank you for your time. And uh, I'm, I'm sure the audience is going to appreciate your, uh, your insights as well. Thank you, Gene. So uh, we'll wrap it up here. I hope that you who have been listening have found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. If so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. And a friendly reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. You can visit the Skillful website at skyllful.com. And if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. Until then, see you on our next episode.